If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I have a great guest on the line today. I'm talking with Dr. Jody Foster. Jody is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the Perman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a vice chair of clinical operations in the Department of Psychiatry, as well as the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the Penn Hospital in Philly, Pennsylvania. She obtained an MBA with a special concentration in finance from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's written a new book titled The Schmuck in My Office, How to Deal Effectively with Difficult People at Work. Now, I'm pleased to have Jody on the show to come tell us a little bit about herself, her background, and of course, this new interesting book called The Schmuck in My Office, which I'm sure you all have uh, experienced that one. So, so Jody, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Jody, I gave everyone a little bit about your background. Just tell us a little bit about yourself because you're a highly accomplished individual. You're a doctor as well as uh, an MBA and both your degrees, all your degrees are from a fantastic school like Penn. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Uh, So I've been in the Penn Health System for um, 28 years. And um, in, I guess, 1998, I uh, decided that uh, maybe I wanted to do something different. I went to Wharton um, uh, to get a degree in finance. And and interestingly, what I discovered when I got there was that probably the best thing I could do for the business world in uh, uh, 1998, I decided to go back to business school, get a finance degree and see if there were some other opportunities uh, for me, perhaps out of medicine. But I pretty quickly discovered that um, the best thing I could do would be to, in fact, stay in medicine because within a few days of, of getting uh, to Wharton, it became pretty evident that uh, uh, I was a commodity to the class and that everybody started coming uh, to talk to me about their problem coworkers and interesting stories that they had at home or with friends, with spouses, with their kids. Um, and everybody just really wanted to know um, – my opinion on why the people around them were behaving the way they were. Wow, because of your psychiatric background? Exactly. So, again, I I, I figured that, wow, there's a niche here where um, the the business world could really benefit from just uh, understanding a little bit more about the people around them. Um, So I went back to Penn Medicine and um, um, stayed around, had a few promotions, um, you know, as you mentioned, now the vice chair of all of the uh, entities of, of the health system. But I also um, developed, was asked to develop a program to intervene with doctors who were having interpersonal problems. And um, this turned out to be such an active program that we started to offer it publicly and to do it in under other industries. And that's uh, kind of how um, uh, I got asked to write this book. Wow, that's very interesting. So I want to ask you a few questions concerning um, your experience at the business school. Because in business, I know 
a lot of people that were in Wharton, which you were most likely high performance, they must have worked on Wall Street or, or somewhere else, but basically they are at the top of their game, whether it's in their career or mentally or physically. And then it's surprising to hear that these people who are the elite are still having interpersonal problems in their businesses and in their places of work. Well, so that's that's the thing, and that's why, lucky for me, it 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 is something that I can help with because, you know, as as adept that we may be as at the uh, the tangibles of our jobs, um, people are always having relationships with other people, and yeah. and conflict comes in endless shapes and sizes, and if you put any two people together in mm -hmm. any situation, you have the potential to have conflict and, and uh, people are in general not so great at managing that. Wow. So this program you created, it was for doctors and then how did it, did you apply it to the business world to see how it would play in the business world before um, the inspiration to write the book came? Well, so actually, um, right after Wharton, I developed a product with a partner to evaluate management teams for venture capital companies okay. um, prior to investment. And to your earlier point, venture capitalists are fantastic at doing due diligence around, you know, um, the the tangibles of a new business opportunity, mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily so great at. Um, uh, evaluating the people that they are planning to invest in yeah. so um, so that was so it was actually initially applied to the business world and then got uh, tailored to the medical world when um, uh, a medical agency called the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals um, put out a statement that said that disruptive physician behavior is a patient quality and safety issue and uh, made it such that all hospitals and health systems had to figure out how to intervene with doctors who were having trouble. So, like I said, this this became so successful that we began to offer it publicly in other industries, and it was actually Wharton that did an alumni interview uh, about this program. Mm -hmm. uh, and within a couple of days of of uh, the published publication of that article, I got a cold call from a, uh, a publicity agent. Um, a literary agent at William Morris who asked me to write the book. Great, great. So, you titled the book The Schmuck in My Office. So now, let's dive into that. So, how would you define or describe a schmuck? So, uh, you know, the word schmuck is obviously, you know, akin to a jerk yeah. um, or just someone who really vexes us or upsets us. So, mm -hmm. um, there's really no specific or set definition of what a schmuck is um, and it becomes especially complicated because you and I might be sitting right next to each other and interacting with the same person and I might think that person's a schmuck and you might think that person's great so it's a very uh, you know personal culturally based I mean I mean office culturally based um, and and uh, interpersonal uh, idiosyncrasy as mm -hmm. to what people consider you know, schmucky or jerkish behavior. But the thing is that when somebody does behave badly, we generally don't kind of call them out on it. Mm -hmm. And we just we just hope that they're not going to do it again. And when they do it again, because they don't know they're doing anything wrong, so they just keep doing it. Eventually, we just get so frustrated that we label people. Mm. We give them these negative labels. 
So, w- what I understand from this is basically a schmuck is someone who exhibits disrupted behavior at the workplace. Correct? Yeah, and but again, the disruptive behavior is also, I mean, it's obvious if, if I'm coming into work and I'm screaming at you and I'm calling you names or I'm throwing furniture around or I'm yeah. punching you in the face, I mean, obviously that's disruptive behavior. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes there's just, you know, uh, insidious passive-aggressive disruptive yeah. behavior yeah. that's so hard to put your finger on mm-hmm. that sometimes you don't even know what's happening to you. Yeah. So it, co- it comes in many shapes and sizes. Yeah. And I think it's especially difficult if it's coming from a superior also because I, when I used to work in consulting in New York, I had some fellow associates of mine who used to always complain about what, working a particular senior or a manager and just because of the way that person was treating them, most of them usually 90% of the time refused to do work with that person even though they yep. were subordinate just because it was too difficult to work with that person. Yep. That happens all the time, and it is difficult because when you know when there's a, a power differential, mm-hmm. and when your you know when your employment feels dependent on a particular person, it's much harder to think that you can you know give them feedback or intervene yeah. with them if they're behaving in a certain way. But you know, I w- I would argue that in uh, in most cases you probably could give feedback. Um, interestingly, the research shows that. Um, so it, this this research was done with physicians, but that when when a physician is confronted with his or her bad behavior, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, in something like 70, 80 percent of the cases, they had no idea that their behavior was being perceived that way. They're horrified and they self-correct. So, you know, when we just assume that someone is a jerk and is never going to change, we also don't give them the chance to do better, even mm. if it's a boss. Mm. But I know that when it comes to giving feedback, usually the um, the brunt of the feedback comes from the superior's side, so to speak. So it, um, I'm, I'm just doing devil's advocate here. So yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it could just basically be that, yeah, the person may be a schmuck, but because that person is superior and the subordinate doesn't have the, the their, their feedback is not really given so much weight, the, te- the tendency is that the schmucks feedback is going to be the one that is taken when it comes time for annual review the schmucks feedback what do you mean what do you mean that like that the, if like the like the superior that's causing the disruptive behavior uh-huh. if two like a superior and a, a subordinate are working together it's the superior's feedback that usually has more weight when it comes oh, time for yeah. annual review absolutely so the absolutely the subordinate may have the opportunity to give that feedback but chances are that it might not be weighed as heavy unless of course it's um, a group thing and everybody is generally complaining about it but usually in a workplace people tend to like try to just uh, sweep it under the rug and just go along and um, try not to make so you, waves in the office. So, you know, I think that uh, each situation is different. So yeah. let's say you have a boss who, you know, um, uh, doesn't like something you did and, and you know, yells at you and, and says you did it wrong and maybe even calls you an idiot or something in front of your peers. Mm-hmm. You know, and, th- and that makes you feel horrible and it makes you not want to go to work the next day. It makes you, you know, think about um, whether you even want to be in this job. And, you know, 
I would argue that it's completely reasonable to go back to that person, even if it's your boss, and say, okay, you know, I understand that you didn't like uh, the way I did that and, and, and that you wanted to give me feedback about it. But to do it in expletives and to do yeah. it in front of my peers was really humiliating for me and it's making me feel really bad about this job. Now, I mean, I think that a boss should be able to hear that and I think a lot of bosses can hear that. I also think that there are going to be situations, maybe not the majority of situations, but there's going to be times when you give it back to the boss like that that mm-hmm. they say, "Hey, this, you know, this person has, you know, this person's got a spine. You know, yeah. this is somebody who this is someone who's brave enough to talk back to me. This is someone I can trust. Yeah. This person's going to tell tell it to me how it is. Yeah. So it really cuts both ways and I think you have to gauge each situation. You're right. There are some where you absolutely if you talk, if you give feedback to the boss, you're sunk. Yeah. And in those situations, you have to decide whether you're going to go above his or her head or go to human resources or whether you just need to not be in that job. Yeah, and what you just said just now just reminded me of something I read. I think it was in Michael Jordan's biography where he was talking about a particular game he was playing, and I think the Steve, um, his teammate Steve Kerr. So Jordan was about to rag on him and bully him, and because this guy was very li- little, you know, that day surprisingly he just snapped and gave Jordan a punch in the face, and from <laughs> that day on, Michael Jordan like respected him and always like shot the ball to him to play that was when they were in their prime in the game so i just remember that you know what when you stand up to people that are being difficult to you sometimes you could actually get the upper hand in that situation absolutely absolutely so so what are some characteristics of um difficult workplace personalities i know you told me earlier before we started the conversation that there are 10 types well, according to me, there are ten types. So I, I, I've, it's the world according to me. Yeah. But I've, you know, I've been doing this work for you know a, a good decade at least formally, and for you know decades before that. And and what I have found is that, um, and again, I get hundreds and uh, you know if not thousands of stories about conflicts mm-hmm. and. You know, when you hear these stories over and over again, sometimes you can make some conclusions and categorizations and similarities. And and it has been my observation that all of these stories that I hear about people getting into trouble with other people at work Mm -hmm. fall into these 10 particular types. And um, these people are not psychiatrically ill. They're not disordered. These are people who are just bringing their personalities to work with them. And, you know, maybe that personality isn't great in a particular culture or a particular team, but it probably works for them at home or with their friends. So they don't necessarily know Mm -hmm. that it's going to rub up against the culture Mm -hmm. and um, and and they get into trouble. But like I said, um, from my experience, uh, that all the stories boil down to um, these 10 types of people. All right, so tell us a little bit about the 10 types, and then we'll dig into each one. And now you mentioned something here, which is the person's personality might not be great in a particular culture. So I would right. want to follow up after we talk about the types, about um, the personality and culture clash, and also things like you know having people from different cultures and different countries having a um, workplace conflict, because now the world is a melting pot. We have people from all right. over the world working together so what is culturally acceptable in one per, in one person's reality is not the same in another person's reality precisely yeah. right 
So, yeah, I'll just, I mean, I'll just give you a sentence or so on each of them. So the, the first one is narcissus, and that's pretty self-explanatory. This is the sort of, um, you know, egotistical, condescending, um, self-inflating uh, person who just fills the room with, with uh, his or her ego, takes credit for your work, cuts you off, uh, always redirects the conversation to him or herself. Um, the Venus flytrap is um, a uh, very, very seductive character who draws you in, uh, makes you want to spend time with them, puts you on a pedestal, makes you feel great, you're really intense. But what you don't know up front is that there is a significant underbelly to this person's personality. And at some point, that overvaluation of you flips to a devaluation. Wow. And as much as uh, they were positive, now they're negative. And these people can be you know, very scary and, and very edgy. And people in the office tend to walk on eggshells around them for fear of setting them off. Mm -hmm. um, the third character is the swindler. And this is somebody who is a rule breaker. Um, um, you know, in its most extreme forms, this might be someone who's um, involved in criminal behavior. But, you know, a good example of a swindler might be like a Bernie Madoff, mm -hmm. where, you know, someone is, is uh, you know, uh, uh, people think that this person is a friend and, and uh, taking care of, of them. And then they find out that all along um, he was, uh, you know, screwing them over and, and uh, knew it while he was having these relationships. Um, the fourth character is the bean counter. Um, the bean counter is the obsessive, controlling micromanager who kind of can't see the forest for the trees and can really torture you with, uh, with uh, getting stuck in the details and mm -hmm. inability to make decisions. The distracted is the person who has a ton of trouble with time management, like a nutty professor type. Mm -hmm. So they can't close the deal. They can't get the job done. Uh, you go into their office and it's piled with crazy papers all over the place. Looks like a tornado hit it. Um, these people don't necessarily have so much interpersonal conflict as the fact that people get really angry at them for not completing the work they need from them. Um, the robotic type is, is uh, someone we might colloquially uh, say falls on the spectrum, quote unquote, and this is someone who has a lot of trouble with uh, the the nuance of interpersonal interactions, and it just really doesn't understand social cues. And um, these individuals tend to be pretty rigid, and if things don't go in the their rigidly prescribed way, they they can sometimes have tantrums and really fly off. But people really just don't understand them because they, like I said, you know. They just don't know how to interact. Yeah. Um, the next character is called the eccentric, and this is someone who, you know, plainly put, is just kind of weird. Somebody who has uh, odd or magical beliefs. Um, and again, they don't necessarily have so much interpersonal problems, but they can definitely raise eyebrows in the office and, yeah. and cause some stir. The suspicious is a uh, sort of the paranoid or conspiratorial character type, where you know everything that's going on is we woven into a theory of uh, uh, persecution and uh, um, very potentially scary people. Uh, Mr. Hyde is somebody who's struggling with an addiction. So, you know, you hired Ms. Dr. Jekyll, but all of a sudden you have Mr. Hyde. And, and this is generally characterized by someone who has a really erratic presentation, like one day they might be a certain way, the next day another, or a period of time they might be one way and then another. And again, this is the influence potentially of substances which can mask uh, or mirror just about any 
disorder. And then the last character I call the Lost, uh, which is a particularly tragic character of somebody who's having cognitive decline, um, you know, maybe uh, uh, beginning to not be able to function at work with what was their previous level of intelligence. So perhaps somebody who's, you know, significantly older and has been in a job for a long time and now is beginning to evidence some um, uh, symptoms of dementia or something like that. So those are the 10 types. Okay. Wow, that's very extensive. So I guess my question now is this. So given the 10 types that you just mentioned, I'm sure there are other types or these types are sometimes hybrid. So yes. the question now is... How do you spot the schmuck? And if you can't schmuck, spot the schmuck, does that mean you are the schmuck in the office? Oh, that's a very good question. <laughs> well, if you're not spotting the schmuck, then maybe you are not having interpersonal problems. Maybe you're in a good mm. team and a good setting and a good culture and, you know, and, and things are okay. Or maybe when you have conflicts, maybe you're in the kind of setting or company where it's sort of psychologically safe to go up and say, hey, I don't, I don't like what you just did. Or, you know, when you do this, it's hard for me. And so maybe people never rise to the level of schmuck. Mm. So it could be a perfectly normal situation. But to your other point, you're absolutely right. If, if in workplace after workplace or situation after situation, everybody around you is wrong um, or, or an idiot or a jerk and the only – and you're always right – yeah. Um, at some point, you're going to have to hopefully notice that the common denominator in all these situations is you yeah. and that, yeah, perhaps you're the schmuck in the office. Mm. So what are some strategies for reducing workplace conflict? Because, of course, these personality types are very different. But yes. if we are all aware of them, how can we start to kind of like yes. diffuse um, uh, conflicts as they start to arise or manage them? Right. It's, that's a very good question. So, yeah, I mean, in the book, each of the 10 types are described. And you're right. People very rarely fall into one bucket um, very neatly. It's often a hybrid. And, you know, and the book describes particular strategies for each type that you might contend with. But there are some overarching uh, conclusions or overarching principles that um, a person can uh, think about that should help reduce um, the amount of conflict in the office. And so the first one and probably the most important one is that we need to accept that people don't set out to be disruptive mm -hmm. in the office or anywhere. People, in other words, I'm asking people to take the malice out of the equation. People don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, today I'm going to turn the office upside down. Today yeah. I'm going to be the biggest jerk that anyone ever met. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so when you take the malice out of, out of the story and, and instead it becomes more of a, a curiosity, like, wow, he was just really horrible. Why would he have acted that way? It just sort of slows it down and, and prevents you from just sort of jumping to anger. Um, an, uh, another principle is that, um, as I mentioned, people's behavior can often be categorized. And, and once you have a sense of the ballpark that they're playing in, you can generally 
make assumptions about the way that they're going to handle situations. So people can be categorized by themes and their behaviors generalized. Um, and to what you said a moment ago, what is disruptive in one culture may be perfectly acceptable in another yeah. culture. Yeah. So it's really, really important for uh, a, a, a team, an organization, or even individuals to lay out the rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. This is what this is what we're about. This is what is acceptable here, because if you know a, a battle cry of many people who are called out on their disruptive behavior is, well, I didn't know that I wasn't allowed to act that way here. Mm -hmm. So the clearer you are, the better. And you should, you know, when you identify something, you should call it out if you can, because yeah. early intervention on these matters is key. If someone's acting a certain way, they're usually going to act that way again, because people tend to, you know, like I said, have personality traits. So when you are talking to somebody and telling them, you know, something that, that you want to give them feedback about, it's really important to be concise and direct with them because these are uncomfortable conversations yeah. and if you use and if you use too many words, if you say too much, it's very easy for people to miss the message mm -hmm. that you're trying to that you're trying to convey. Um, and uh, I guess one last thing is that when when somebody's really getting under your skin and bothering you, another incredibly important thing to do is to Again, take a step back and say, wait a second, why is this bothering me so much? Yeah. And sometimes you'll find that it's you know, something maybe from your past or from a prior experience that you might be laying on to this person that's making it even worse than it, than it has to be. Yeah, I quite agree with you there. And um, I know the main thing, especially dealing with conflict and different personality types, is that people just don't want to have the difficult conversations, yes. you know. Yes. It usually gets to the very last point where things have gotten so out of hand that, you know what, maybe a separation is just the best way possible. So before exactly. it gets to that stage, how can the listeners on the show, people that are reading your book, start to think about having difficult conversations early, either subordinates raising it up to other managers to try and call in their boss, directly or some other type of way so how can we start um to get these conversations going because i believe dialogue is probably the best way to start resolving these issues before they become detrimental to the organization as a whole right i couldn't agree with you more and that's exactly where the title of the book came from um I can't tell you how many times I have picked up the phone with somebody calling me for a consult and the first thing out of their mouth is, Jody, I should have called you 10 years ago. Yeah. I have this schmuck in my department. I have a jerk in my office, you know, and, and, and again, like I said, we avoid it and it festers like a virus. Mm -hmm. And then by the time we actually intervene, we are, it is, it is so far gone and, and we are so angry that sometimes you're right. You, you almost can't go back from it. So it is absolutely true that the earlier we can intervene in some way or the earlier we can figure it out and call it out so that we can figure out how to strategize around how to get along with these people or how to help them make change, mm -hmm. the, the better it's going to be. Because again, so many of these people, when you, when you actually talk to them about their behavior, they're going to say, wait a second, I've been working with you for 30 years and you never said this to me. Yeah. And you know, so the thing is that, like you said, 
difficult conversations are difficult for people. People are afraid that, you know, they're going to be retaliated against or it's not going to go anywhere or that they're going to lose, they're, they're going to lose their jobs or whatever it is. Um, so it's not that I'm asking people to like, you know, barrel into their boss's office and say, hey, you're a real jerk and this is what you're doing. What I, what I am saying, though, is that um, we're each responsible for 50% of the relationship that we have with another person. And, you know, even if all you do is, is uh, figure out where your comfort zone is and just try to inch it along a little bit and mm-hmm. do just one extra thing to let someone know that their behavior is bothering you yeah. that, that you otherwise wouldn't have done. Well, again, it may not have a tremendous impact in that moment or at all, but at least you've gotten some of it off your chest and yeah. even that is therapeutic. Uh, very interesting. And now, one one angle I want to look at that causes major conflict in the workplace is the generational issues. You know, you work like mo- the workplace right now. I think forty five percent or so is filled with millennials, and then you have baby boomers starting to retire, and I believe it's um, Gen X or Gen Y. So those um, relationships, how can you? deal with conflicts that arise as a result of um, intergenerational differences yeah with, I get, I get with, I get. with respect to these um, characters that you've mentioned of a schmuck hmm? yeah I get a lot of questions about millennials because you know again the older among us are, are very vexed by you know some of their outlook the thing about this is that you know um, the, when something is aberrant it's aberrant because it's going against a cultural norm mm-hmm. and at this point, the millennial culture has become the cultural norm for this group of people. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, as a psychiatrist, I'm going to be concerned about and looking for the person who is acting counter to their to the cultural norm. And so, you know, a young person who's acting like a millennial is doing what they do. So the conflict comes, and you know, uh, the older person says. You know, when I was coming up, this is how we did it. And the younger person is saying, well, uh, you know, I don't care. This is how I need it now. And so, you know, I don't know that that necessarily falls into the same category as the individual schmuck in my office. It's mm-hmm. a larger it's a larger generational cultural question. Yeah. And and so, you know, I, I, I certainly don't have the power to change a generation or to, you know, get, get a millennial to start to see things from, (laughs) from my perspective. It's, it's, it's a lot harder than somebody who is individually acting in an aberrant way. Way. Yeah. And speaking of acting in an aberrant way, now this is bordering on, you know, mental illness and disorder. So if, for example, someone is showing like clinical symptoms of um, mental challenges, are there ways where um, co-workers can step in and kind of um, raise that question in a very discreet way to let the person know that, look, um, your behavior is not necessarily um, proper, so maybe could you see a doctor or talk to someone about how you're behaving? Because sometimes it may just be the person may be having um, personal issues and they start acting out, or it could just be like a mental condition. So how, yeah, do, I mean, how, I, do, how I, does one approach it? 
you have to be extremely careful because yeah. if and when you approach somebody who has a real illness, um, then you are uh, at times butting up against uh, American with Disabilities Act yeah. laws. Yeah. So it's, you know, I, I can't go up to someone and say, hey, you know, you look like you have a major depression and, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think you should go see a, uh, a doctor about that. You really can't do yeah. that and you yeah. certainly can't mandate people to it. I will tell you that people with true mental illness are the absolute rarity. I mean, in okay. all the consults that I've done, in all of them, I would say that, you know, maybe you know, less than 10 mm. have had mental illness um, that, that I have had to refer for that kind of intervention. Mm. So I think when someone is, what you think, what you have to sort of focus on is if someone is evidencing truly significantly aberrant behavior that makes you wonder about a mental illness and, and it's an important and, they're not able to function at work. Mm-hmm. Well, at that at that point, you might be able to go to human resources and say, you know, I don't think this person is is uh, is safe or able. Mm-hmm. And that's when you get into the whole um, field of independent medical evaluations and fitness for duty evaluations and and things like that. But yeah. that should always be done in concert with, you know, human resources or even the general counsel's office. That's that's tr- tricky territory because of the ADA. Yeah, no, that that's that's very good. I just I just wanted to know because I know people could actually uh, a either gossip <laughs> behind someone's back yes, and, course, and yeah. allude to the fact that there's something there when there actually isn't anything there. So I just right. wanted you to bring that slide. Wow, that's a very very interesting topic for today. So I just want to start winding down by asking you. So you've talked a lot about you know the different personality types. You talked about managing conflict now how can we build like thriving emotionally intelligent workplaces that can reduce conflict and make it just a pleasurable place for for people to come to work right so i would say that um the the clearer you are about what you want your organization to be let's say you're the ceo or you, you know it's your company the clearer you are about what your value system is what your mission is what you know what the culture is at at this place First of all, it allows people to, you know, take a look in and say, oh, well, this is how they do it here. And I, I really, that's not really how it is for me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you take someone who's incredibly rigid and structured and needs things to be a certain way. And then you put them in like, you know, a, an office without walls where, you know, everyone just sits on the floor. That's not going to work for them. Yeah. And so they, so the clearer you are about who you are, the better people can decide whether or not to join your team. Mm-hmm. But once once they are in, if something's coming up or conflicts are coming up or they're not a good match, the best thing uh, uh, you can do is to make it safe. You yeah. know, make it safe to say, this isn't working for me or the way you just spoke to me felt disrespectful. Can we talk about that? You know, it, it, it's, in, it's in office settings where you really literally can't do that you're you're kind of almost straitjacketed in, in in what you are and aren't allowed to say yeah. that's when things really really fester so as you know safe and open an environment as you can make it where people can get things off their chest so that they can keep you know working at their highest level of productivity that's going to make for the best possible workplace 
Very cool. Very cool stuff. So as we start to wind down, Jody, I just want to ask you a couple wrapping up questions and then I'll let you let you go. So okay. you've been in your particular job or in your company, for example, the University of Pennsylvania Health System for quite a long time, over 28 years, correct? Yes. So um, what has what got you excited to start working in Penn and doing what you do? And why have you done it so long in one place? So um, uh, I have a little 11-year-old son, and one of the most important things I want to teach him is that, you know, I, I don't particularly care what it is that he's interested in, wants to pursue in mm -hmm. his career, but I do want him to find what he loves mm -hmm. and pursue it. And um, for me, I am lucky in that psychiatry has always felt like a calling for me. And mm. so I've never, I've never had ambivalence about um, the subject matter that I work with. So, I, so number one, I love what I do. Yeah. Number two, um, you know, Penn is a fantastic organization. And what I can say about Penn is that I actually, you know, on the one hand, you can see that I've been sitting in the same place for 28 years, so I look like I'm a pretty sedentary person, but in fact, I get pretty agitated pretty quickly, and about every two or three years, I get really jumpy, like I need a change, and Penn has every single time, every time I've wanted something new, Penn has given me something new. Every time I've wanted to spread my wings, they've let me spread my wings. And so, you know, I started out as a, as a, as a medical intern mm -hmm. and, you know, and I certainly never expected to be uh, chair of my department at Pennsylvania hospital or, or vice chair of the whole uh, system for psychiatry. But um, Penn is always just expanded with me and I'm very it, it's done what it has to do to keep me happy that, that's pretty cool and I wish all organizations could actually um, study and observe their like high, yeah. high performance and their top players and say hey you know this person wants to spread their wings let's make it comfortable for them to, to spread their wings and fly and be awesome at their job and then yep. they'll stay longer and they'll be happy because of course the cost incurred when you get people leaving and coming leaving and coming is oh much higher, is much higher than actually making somebody happy and making them want to stay in one place so that's, that's absolutely that's, true that's, that's pretty awesome to hear that they were able to provide you with such a platform so um who are your heroes who do you look up to who do you admire who do you draw inspiration from oh that's a hard question um uh uh, I actually don't necessarily uh, look to others for that. Um, I try to get all of that from within myself. I'll tell you that, you know, over the years, I've, of course, had mentors mm -hmm. um, and people who, who have uh, helped shape the way I, I think about things. But, you know, people are – it's very rare to find one pe person who is all things to you. So yeah. what, I, what I sort of uh, discovered for myself in mentorship is that, you know, I might have one person who is a mentor for me in one area. Like yeah. let's say, you know, um, uh, I don't know, uh, medication or interpersonal skills, whatever it is. But, you know, maybe they fall short or on some other areas that I don't admire quite as much. You know, I've allowed that to be okay, and I've just tried to take the good stuff that I can take from that person. And I've done that, you know, over with several people. So I used to joke that uh, 
my mentor, quote unquote, was a bionic mentor because it was made up of different pieces of lots of different people. I um I also think I uh, actually draw, believe it or not I think that learning by negative example is incredibly powerful and I've probably drawn a lot of lessons and inspiration mm-hmm. from seeing people do it the wrong way. Yeah, I, I I quite agree with you there. I mean, there's there's no benefit or there's no nobility or honor in actually learning from your own mistakes. I think it's much better to learn from other people's mistakes <laughs> <laughs> and then use that lesson and grow. It doesn't have to be so expensive and it doesn't have to all be be born on you. So I quite agree with you there. And so um, I, I know you shared a joke with me earlier about you finding out that you have a little bit of Nigerian DNA in you. So I, I like to I like to find out from you. So what, what are some of the fun stuff you do? Because, of course, you're a highly respected doctor. You have a mba and you know people people will probably view you as a super serious lady that just go 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 but what are some things you do for fun to hang out to relax and chill uh well so uh I, I think it's unbelievably important to have fun at work so i i don't know that people um think i'm a particularly serious lady because i'm always having or trying to have fun in the workplace because i think that really helps the day go faster um but I also think that um, the way I look at my job is that when I'm at work, I'm working and I, you know, put everything into it. And when I finish my workday, I'm off. I'm on vacation. So I take, you know, I feel like I I try to make every day a mini vacation. And then, of course, you know, having a a little son, um, you know, there's nothing uh, that I've ever, ever seen that's brought you know, more joy or happiness or pride or levity than having a little boy or a little kid around. So um, that's, that's been the, probably the greatest achievement of my whole life is having my little boy. That's fantastic. And with that said, Jody, we've reached the end of the show. So where can people find you, learn more about you and the work that you do? And of course, where can they find the book and um, buy the book? Um, so the book's available on all major booksellers, but um, for, I guess, a one-stop shop, they can go to our webpage at www.schmuckinmyoffice.com, <laughs> and they can link, they can link to uh, buying the book from there. Yeah, and, I'm going, and I'm going to list um, the Schmuck in My Office in the show notes. So what about you personally? Are you on any of the social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, <laughs> well, Instagram? Do you Instagram or Snap? Well, it's uh, it's a kind of a funny answer. For most of my career, I've uh, run locked, primarily psychotic inpatient units. And um, for that reason, I am on absolutely no social media whatsoever because I've, uh, I've uh, had a few stalking incidents in my uh, career. So. Wow. Wow, that is a... Uh... That's an interesting piece of information. It's it's you know it's my absolute favorite population, but you know obviously, you know there there are limits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, with that said, we've reached the end of the show. I really want to thank you for coming to share your story, to share um your thoughts about the book, and of course to teach us how to have better workplace relationships. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, 
Go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com.